This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Cries of anguish break out as leftist lunacy rapidly replaces so-called classical liberalism. The set of ideas known as classical liberalism took shape between about 1650 and 1800. French, English, and Italian philosophers tried to create a moral system that they saw as natural, as opposed to supernatural. It was a system that rejected God and the Church. For the next 300 years, that system gained popularity. By the 60s and 70s, it had mutated into cries of freedom, liberation, and do-your-own-thing. Now, another philosophical system is replacing classical liberalism. Its proponents refer to it as postmodernism. The current popular name for it is woke. Mr. John Horvat discusses this process in his essay, The Death of Live and Let Live Liberalism. Live and let live liberalism is dying. Accept and validate post-liberalism is ready to impose its tyranny on a world without values. A fundamental and faulty premise of liberalism is that people should do what they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else. Under these conditions, all legal acts, whether virtues or vices, are considered morally neutral, one having just as much value as another. Liberalism may have other economic and political manifestations, but the ultimate goal is to create a man-centered culture that maximizes individual freedom. Thus, a liberal society lets individuals determine what makes them happy, even though it might make others unhappy or prove self-destructive. If all mind their own business liberals hold, everyone will be better off. The nation will be free to prosper without cumbersome moral restraints. In matters that require agreement among quarreling individuals, liberal democracy established a consensus based upon majority rule to bring some kind of order to society. This live-and-let-live liberalism, focusing on maximizing individual freedom, has dominated American society for decades. To say that the system worked well over the years is an exaggeration. It gives the appearance of a peaceful consensus where everyone gets along. However, beneath the surface, this brand of liberalism creates social tensions and discord when reality fails to correspond to its utopian ideal. When society decays due to this everything-goes ethos, People contest the moral neutrality of acts and question the gratification of the passions as a determinant of happiness. As a result, this system gradually tends to polarize the nation. The clash caused the culture war that still rages inside America today. For example, liberals tried to pass off abortion as a live-and-let-live option. Those opposed to the barbaric practice were advised not to have one. However, pro-lifers disputed the neutrality of the act of procured abortion. They declared it morally wrong, which led to the Dobbs victory and present illiberal impasse. Despite the tensions, the great success of live-and-let-live liberalism is its ability to frame any vice into an expression of freedom and any virtue as an oppressive restraint. 
Moreover, this liberalism lets society slide gradually into decay without entirely suppressing virtue. However, this gradual method of advancing the liberal agenda has its limitations. Inherited Christian morals held in check many excesses that liberalism proposed. In addition, the system's emphasis on individual freedom still allows people to disagree with others, reject practices personally deemed evil, and even take action against those aberrations they think harm society. Some more radical sins, while privately allowed, remain hidden, stigmatized, and separated from the mainstream. Thus, live-and-let-live liberalism is now an obstacle to an emerging post-liberal society. The unbridled passions liberalism unleashed now demand total liberation and the destruction of any Christian morals from the past that stand in the way. This new post-liberal society challenges old liberalism social structures, conventions, and narratives, and no longer tolerates major opposition. One tactic consists in turning personal choice into the supreme value above all others. Anyone who opposes what is chosen is accused of being against all choices in general. This position demands that all personal choices be officially recognized, even if it offends others, cause individuals harm, or are held by a minute minority. Every erroneous choice must be granted instant citizenship in the public square and in the public school. Totemizing personal choice as a supreme value forces the immediate acceptance of unacceptable choices that destroy the church, society, and the family. Indeed, it allows the other side to frame the debate and choose the battlefield. It marks a significant policy change. Thus, Post-liberal activists no longer permit live-and-let-live liberalism since it hinders the total liberation of the individual by insisting upon the need for structures like logic, identity, and sexuality. Post-liberalism also cannot let live forms of morality that clash with its frenetic intemperance. Live-and-let-live liberalism is replaced by accept-and-validate post-liberalism. The post-liberals claim that all choices, even bad ones, must not only be tolerated, but validated. Any hostility constitutes denying them equality and citizenship and must be condemned as hateful, hurtful, and bigoted. In this sense, the word democracy is hijacked to mean a regime of ever-expanding choices in which one person can rule over the majority, as long as that choice favors the left. Examples of accept and validate post-liberalism abound and now dominate the culture war scene. The goal is to suppress what little remains of Christian opposition. Those stuck in a David Frenchian accommodate drag queen's mindset will be swept away, even as they try to appease the opposition with concessions. One example of the new paradigm is pronoun tyranny. 
It is not enough that individuals deceive themselves by denying their birth identity. Everyone must validate these erroneous choices with the wrong pronouns or face dismissal, fines, or legal action. It matters not if one individual or a whole community has problems of conscience using these terms. The so-called democracy of one person must prevail. The pandemic of drag queen story hours everywhere is forcing acceptance of the LGBTQ plus agenda upon the population. It is not enough that men dress as garish women to terrorize children. They must be forced upon libraries and schools. They must be given an equal platform to indoctrinate children with their morally skewed stories. Parents who protest must be canceled and defamed. The after-school Satan Club must be granted the same rights as the after-school Christian Club, despite the opposition of most local taxpayers. All it takes is for one Satanist to appear before the school board, demanding equal access to students, and all must bow down before the idol of choice, represented by Satan. In the same way, Agendas like critical race theory and gender ideology are finding their way into society and schools demanding not only acceptance, but validation. No choice can be denied as wrong or evil, since all are deemed equal. Accept and validate post-liberalism is a natural consequence of live-and-let-live liberalism. The free reign of the passions under an accommodating liberal regime will sooner or later lead to a revolt against any restraint, authority, or inequality. Post-liberal society reaches the point when it can no longer live with any Christian moral foundations. Eventually, even the slightest Christian custom, gesture, tradition, or censure be it a bathroom, wedding cake, flag, or pronoun, becomes unbearable. Post-liberal activists then insist these presumably hurtful practices be suppressed and demand an end to Christianity's claim to moral authority. The radical promoters of post-liberalism have no scruples about ruthlessly employing the full force of the law to enforce their so-called choice. They will implement a so-called democracy to ensure that an immoral minority rules. Liberalism is in crisis today because its accommodating position that treats good and evil equally has reached its inevitable and absurd consequence, the triumph of evil. The way to fight, accept, and validate post-liberalism is by denying its false liberal premises. The process has advanced so much that there can be no return to any classical liberal alternative. Thus, the premise of the moral neutrality of acts is false. Objective good and evil exist. According to the much-denied dictates of natural law, Good is to be done and pursued, and evil avoided. 
This law is valid for all times, everyone, and everywhere. Virtue and vice can never be equal. Satan is evil and must be rejected. People must make moral judgments about what they do that reflect God's law if society is to function well. Likewise, choice must not be weaponized. A choice is a means and not an end. There are good and bad choices. True positive freedom consists in choosing things according to human nature and avoiding the contrary. One can never validate sin and error. Adopting this strategy is no longer an option but a necessity, since the radical post-liberals force this choice upon those who still hold to Christian morals. However, just opposing premises is not enough. The ultimate target of liberalism has always been the Catholic Church. The great battles of the 19th century liberals against the Church sought to change a God-centered society into a man-centered one. Liberals promoted a naturalistic, materialistic, and secular order affecting intellectual, religious, political, and economic life. They sought emancipation from the Church's supernatural, moral, and divine order. Live and let live liberalism is dying. Accept and validate post-liberalism is ready to impose its tyranny on a world without values. The principal concern of those engaged in the fight should be to embrace this supernatural, moral, and divine order for which so many postmodern people unconsciously yearn. The new woke order is a fearsome thing. Many of those fears come from the fact that it has few rules. It seems to move with the dictates of whoever can shout the loudest. Of course, many of the shouters come from the faculties and student bodies of the nation's universities, with all the arrogance that accompanies those with lots of education, but no wisdom. They assert that only they can dictate the new rules. The result is a chaotic world without standards, or rather a world of double standards. They shout that black lives matter, unless that person is a police officer or a business owner. They speak out against private property until their own money or property is stolen. They claim to speak for the poor, but are willing to acquire the trappings of wealth for themselves. Another double standard is seen in the woke attitude towards religion. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses one aspect of this hypocrisy in his essay, The Double Standards of Modern Campuses That Defend Islam Yet Attack Christianity. Modern academia goes out of its way to shield Muslims from any offense. At the same time, it actively praises acts that offend Christians. The relatively conservative National Association of Scholars reported on the plight of Dr. Erica Lopez Prater. Until December 2022, she was an adjunct professor at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hamlin's website touts the praise that it has received from the national media. U.S. News & World Report calls it Minnesota's best regional university 
Washington Monthly identifies Hamlin as the best master's university in Minnesota. The site also quotes a 2022 graduate who said, quote, Doing summer work at Hamlin helped me gain skills that are invaluable in a lab or in a field. How to be adaptable, flexible, how to problem solve, and think critically, unquote. However, on the topic of Islam, Hamlin is neither adaptable nor flexible. It is intransigent. Dr. Lopez Prater's experience confirms this unfortunate conclusion. One of her assignments at Hamlin was to teach an online course about global art history. One premise behind any humanities course labeled global is that students should study all cultures equally, thus including Muslim cultures. However, Muslim culture is an academic minefield, as Dr. Lopez Prater discovered to her chagrin. In the course syllabus, she specifically warned that she would present and discuss pictures of religious figures, including that of the founder of Islam, Muhammad. One of Islam's superstitions is that any image of Muhammad is a form of idolatry. Even so, no student objected. When she later displayed the painting featuring Muhammad, she warned the students several minutes before she showed it. Again, no one objected. However, after showing the picture to her students, one did complain. The student did not complain to the teacher, but rather to the administration. Other Muslim students who were not in the class joined the complaint. The National Association of Scholars described the administration's response, quote, Dr. Lopez Prater did everything she could to foster a respectful discussion on an important piece of art, and yet it still took only a single student complaint for her to lose her job, unquote. Then they added a touch of deliberate irony, quote, in a world where inclusive excellence is valued above academic excellence, we should expect nothing else. Unquote. This situation brought two stories with very different outcomes to mind. In 2021, the supposedly Catholic Seton Hall University's radio station, WSOU, broadcast several satanic-oriented pieces of so-called music that offended many Catholics who have protested and complained. Describing the protest against the station, TFP Student Action member Dominic Galatolo listed and documented the offenses. 1. Blacken the Cursed Sun from the album titled Sacrament by the band blasphemously named Lamb of God. The cover of the album features a sacrilegious mockery of the Holy Eucharist. 2. No Light Shall Save Us by the band Carnifex. Its lyrics are clearly satanic. Blessed are the damned. This hell is home. The lyrics continue. We stole the stars from the sky, from the hand of God to death divine. We stole the light from their eyes, condemning the world to eternal night. 3. 
Make America Hate Again by the band Thy Art is Murder. The lyrics read, I want blood, I want chaos, more chaos, more chaos, more chaos. And four, Necromania by the group Electric Wizard. The title is bad enough, but the macabre piece describes a satanic ritual murder. However, the university did not publicly punish the students responsible for the broadcast. Perhaps a faculty advisor told students to refrain, but if that happened, no one ever announced it. Certainly no one was fired or expelled. The outrages continue. However, another saga directly applies to Dr. Lopez Prater's situation. Not only did it concern another Minnesota professor, but it presented a religious sacrilege. However, unlike Dr. Lopez Prater's caution and concern for those who might be offended, this one was overtly sacrilegious, public, and designed to create a reaction. On July 24, 2007, Dr. Paul Z. Myers, a biology professor at the University of Minnesota, committed a horrible blasphemy. He deliberately desecrated a consecrated host. He described the sacrilege, quote, I pierced the host with a rusty nail. I hope Jesus' tetanus shots are up to date. And then I simply threw it in the trash, unquote. At the time... TFP Student Action Director John Ritchie noted, quote, No disciplinary measures appear to have been taken by the University of Minnesota officials in response to the public sacrilege committed by Professor Myers, unquote. Not only was no action taken, but Dr. Myers is still on the faculty at the University of Minnesota. These are but two examples that come to mind. Many more could be cited. However, the sampling raises the question of why academia punishes when Islam is concerned and allows much greater outrages against Christianity to go unnoticed. There are at least two reasons. First, the woke world believes that Christianity, especially the Catholic Church, represents oppression. It's fulfillment of our Lord's command, Going therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, see Matthew chapter 28 verse 19, imposes the faith upon pagan peoples. Christianity's moral codes, they argue, crush the human spirit, while anarchy and disillusion liberate it. The second reason is that many Christians will not publicly defend the faith. Indeed, some church officials are all too willing to join the attack against true religion. Readers may remember the scandalous gala at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2018. TFP writer John Horvat described the occasion, quote, The posh gala gathering featured a fashion show in which famous women stars dressed in provocative and revealing versions of sacred vestments and symbols, including that of bishops and the Pope, unquote. 
The event was shocking enough. However, the real scandal was that the Cardinal Archbishop of New York, His Eminence Timothy Dolan, was there to join and approve of the affair. St. John Bosco described Islam as, quote, a collection of maxims from various religions which, if practiced, brings about the destruction of every moral principle, unquote. Indeed, Christians should defend the true faith more vigorously than those of the Islamic sect. Perhaps the area of greatest confusion is the woke world that they call gender identity. They assert that each individual can be whatever sex they want to be, even if those sexes never existed until their fevered woke imagination dreamed them up. It almost seems that they want to get all of society on a carousel and make it go so fast that we all get dizzy and lose all sense of direction. However, some people who have taken long rides on that carousel want to get off. Mr. Michael Haynes discusses these unfortunate souls in his essay, Ex-trans, individuals speak out, no such thing as a transgender. A number of individuals who lived as so-called transgenders and even underwent surgery to achieve this end are now speaking out about the physical and mental dangers and the lies of the transgender movement. While the advocates of the transgender lobby loudly and persistently proclaim the supposed benefits of gender reassignment surgery, numerous personal testimonies highlight the danger of such procedures and the falsehoods underpinning the transgender argument. Society is battling against the seemingly all-pervasive forces of the transgender lobby. Propaganda for this movement is seen in every aspect of society. There is, for example, even a WikiHow page titled, How to Know if You Are Transgender. The lobby is so radical that it swiftly turns against those who would previously have been deemed to be left-wing. The case of Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling is well known. In 2020... Rowling wrote on Twitter that biological sex is a reality while defending same-sex relationships and trans people. Despite her promotion of homosexuality and transgenderism, Rowling was not radical enough to keep up with the increasingly powerful transgender lobby, which led to her public social ostracization and demonization. The social demise of J.K. Rowling served to highlight the immense power which the trans lobby has accumulated, pushing the supposed truths of its every argument. However, a number of individuals who lived as transgender are now speaking out about the dangers and lies of the transgender movement. One prominent voice is that of Walt Heyer, who boldly calls for an end to even using the terms gender dysphoria, transgender, and transitioning. Quote, I haven't found one person that actually has gender dysphoria, he just told in the news. Born in 1940, Heyer was one of the first victims of the transgender movement. He spent eight years living as a woman, including having gender reassignment surgery, before detransitioning in 1991. 
Hire is very open about what led to his decision to live as a woman when aged 42 after his diagnosis of gender dysphoria two years earlier. He traces the cause to childhood trauma from his grandmother, who dressed him in girls' clothes along with enduring sexual abuse. Recalling how his grandmother was a seamstress, Hire told that he was particularly interested in his grandmother's activity and eventually, at four years old, began to demonstrate an interest in wearing some of the ladies' clothes that she was making. His grandmother made him a dress for him to wear, and then, quote, started affirming me and started telling me how cute I was, unquote. Heyer described this as an active process of abuse, which damaged him both emotionally and psychologically. Added to this, Heyer was sexually abused when nine years old by his teenage uncle. In fact, this abuse occurred after his uncle heard of Heyer wearing dresses. Heyer directly links the abuse to his increased attachment to transgender ideology. Quote, that abuse caused me not to want to be male any longer. Cross-dressing gave me an escape. Unquote. Heyer recounted in a 2019 essay that he began to focus on how he could become a girl, even asking God to turn him into a girl, believing that this would lead to his acceptance and affirmation by those around him. Nevertheless, he married while in his 20s, but reveals that by the time he was 40, he decided to seek a gender specialist who diagnosed him with gender identity disorder. The specialist subsequently recommended cross-sex hormones and sex-change genital surgery. The doctor rejected the argument that Heyer's childhood experiences had any bearing upon the matter. Heyer underwent the invasive surgery so commonly heard of amongst transgender advocates, including having breast implants and feminizing procedures. In addition, he officially changed his name to Laura Jensen. A few years later, Heyer realized that he was deeply unhappy with his choice. He was driven to thoughts of suicide. The representative of the transgender movement, a gender specialist, downplayed any concerns. Fortunately, Heyer did not listen to his advice and sought professional help to revisit his childhood traumas and thus, quote, address the underlying conditions driving my gender dysphoria, unquote. He noted the key elements in his early life that led to mental anguish. However, he also warned that his destructive steps were only possible due to the availability and promotion of the transgender lifestyle. Quote, Had I not been misled by media stories of sex change success and by medical practitioners who said transitioning was the answer to my problems, I wouldn't have suffered as I have. Unquote. Since returning to living as a man in 1991, Heyer has been outspoken in his mission to highlight the deception and danger inherent in the transgender movement. Nobody's born transgender, he told Just the News. 
The truth is, transgenders don't exist. There is no such thing as transgender, unquote. Individuals who present themselves as transgender are, quote, struggling with either bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, body dysmorphia, depression, or some underlying comorbid issue, unquote. He warned that despite the media's campaign to present cases such as his as rare, the reality was quite different. Heyer mentioned that his inbox was full of messages from individuals who had undergone the terrible procedures of changing their body to represent a different sex and now regret the decision. Another high-profile figure whose testimony rebuffs the transgender movement is Chris Beck, a former highly decorated member of SEAL Team 6. Beck publicly announced that he was transitioning to living as a woman in 2013, going by the name Kristen. During a lengthy interview in December, Beck recounted how he was convinced he was transgender by a doctor in a single meeting and consequently given hormone drugs. He became a very prominent advocate for the transgender movement, speaking at many rallies under his newly acquired fame from his book, Warrior Princess. However, last year Beck announced that he had detransitioned. Quote, Everything that happened to me for the last ten years destroyed my life. I destroyed my life. I'm not a victim. I did this to myself. But I had help. Unquote. Like Heyer, Beck highlighted the pro-transgender lobby's role in society, particularly in the media. Quote, I was used. I was very naive. I was in a really bad way. I got taken advantage of. I got propagandized. I got used badly by a lot of people who had knowledge way beyond me. They knew what they were doing. I didn't. Unquote. He also cited his concern for children, who received the transgender movement's arguments as a reason for being so public about his detransitioning. Indeed, while the media are blithely promoting gender surgery as a way to accept one's imagined identity, the same media turn a blind eye to the tragic reality which is increasingly seen as a result of such arguments and medical interventions. As family advocates have warned, the ready availability of assisted suicide is playing a growing role in the sorry saga of the transgender movement. Accounts are multiplying of individuals whose mental anguish has not been solved by undergoing reassignment surgery. Contrary to what they were promised, these poor individuals end their lives through assisted suicide due to the disappointment. As noted by Ross Douthat in the New York Times recently, the reasons for people seeing euthanasia in Canada are growing. Douthat writes, The idea that human rights encompass a right to self-destruction, the conceit that a people in a state of terrible suffering and vulnerability are really free to make a choice that ends all choices, 
The idea that a healing profession should include death in its battery of treatments, these are inherently destructive ideas. Left unchecked, they will forge a cruel, brave new world, a dehumanizing chapter for the liberal story. Unquote. This concludes, Cries of anguish break out as leftist lunacy rapidly replaces so-called classical liberalism. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. You can help Return to Order be more effective. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.